Our scripture today can be found in Matthew 22:15 through 22. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible under your seat, and it'll be on page 827. So Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike. I do a lot of the preaching here at Trinity. Today we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of four biographies of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you ahead of time why there's no slides for this sermon. Every now and then in a preacher's life, I'm learning as a very young, kind of new preacher, you, you realize about 15 minutes before you're supposed to preach that a good chunk of what you wanted to say is not what you want to say anymore. <laughs> and so you end up going into this desperate editing phase, like at a really inconvenient time. For me, it was 9.45 this morning, which is usually when I remember that I was supposed to have sent my slides in on Friday. So, that, so that's why there are no slides for this sermon this morning. I'm looking for your guys' grace on this one. So we've come to this part where, where Matthew is narrating the week leading up to Jesus' death. So Jesus has made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. He's probably done this every year of his life for, for a long time, but this, this pilgrimage is different. He has come to stir stuff up. And really, he's going to stir things up to the point where he will actually be rejected and killed by the very people who are supposed to be waiting for his coming. And so what we're finding is that Jesus wasn't killed because of a, a message of tolerance, which that's sort of something that a lot of folks will sometimes say is that Jesus was ultimately killed because he, he had a very controversial message of tolerance. We're finding that that's not actually it. What we're seeing in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus was killed because he made some intense claims to allegiance. He claimed people's allegiance. And that was ultimately the thing that got him killed. He showed up saying that if people wanted to discover the way life was meant to be lived, they would have to give him their ultimate allegiance. Which is obviously just as radical today as it was back then. And so what ends up happening is Jesus makes his way into the city of Jerusalem for Passover week, and he starts getting questioned by all kinds of different religious leaders who are trying to challenge this claim to authority. And so like these challenges are going to cover a bunch of different topics from ethics and theology, but, but today we hit a, you know, a really easy topic for us, politics, right? So today Jesus is going to address politics. Obviously there are a few issues that are more divisive in our nation than politics. And so because of that, uh, th- there's sort of been this trend where, where a lot of preachers try to, to sort of remove politics from the pulpit, it's like, it's way too divisive, it's way too, there's too much potential for misunderstanding, so what we're going to do is we're just going to completely not 
address politics. And so today, before I actually jump into the passage, I just want to speak to that briefly. So again, there's this attitude that's pretty common where folks will say that a preacher can preach about anything except politics. Preach the Bible, leave politics out of it. And I can actually understand why someone would want to say that. For one thing, I think that there have been many pastors and religious leaders and preachers who have completely abused their platform. And so what ends up happening is they get up with the pretense of preaching on God's word, and they end up just campaigning, right? They, they grandstand for a particular candidate or a particular party, which I, I think is just sort of a, a really— it's kind of taking advantage of the, the whole like one-person conversation thing that happens during a sermon. It's also often unnuanced. A lot of preachers don't take the, the time to understand both sides of an issue, and so when they start talking, they, they treat whoever they don't agree with with a really dismissive, kind of condescending tone, and so they end up being obviously divisive because they're being rude. And so I actually feel a lot of sympathy toward this idea that we should keep politics out of the pulpit. It can get messy. But at the end of the day, I'm not convinced. And here's the reason why. I'm worried that, that we've been so turned off that we're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like we've been so insulted and condescended to and we've seen so much abuse that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's true that a lot of Christian teachers have been very irresponsible But I'm worried that when we make this whole rule, I'm worried that what we're actually doing is we're saying that God is allowed to challenge every area of my life except this thing that I spend so much time watching YouTube videos about and so much time reading Twitter feeds about and so much time listening to radio about and so much time watching television about and in the meantime, I'm also thinking about it constantly. And it's the most divisive issue in our nation and we don't want the preacher to speak to it. And we'd rather not the Bible do so either. That's why I'm worried about this whole keep politics out of the pulpit thing. I think it's crazy misguided. Understandable, but misguided. So for me, at the end of the day, this is kind of where I'm at. I think if the scriptures speak to something, then followers should follow and preachers should preach. The scriptures speak to politics. They really do. They speak to politics. And wherever the scriptures speak to politics or wherever there's an application to politics, I think we need to listen because it takes up a whole bunch of our headspace, if for no other reason than that. And again, I say that knowing that politics can be hugely controversial, but so can the scriptures, right? The scriptures are controversial. And so if we don't engage meaningfully with what the scriptures say about politics, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to default to whatever political position we've sort of already planted our flag into or whatever political position we're most exposed to. We're just going to default to that uncritically. There will be nothing distinctly Christian about the way that we engage with politics. And it's really important that we base our ideas on the foundation of the scriptures because no group of humans, whether conservative or liberal, no group of humans are going to be right about everything. We need to hear what the Lord has spoken on these subjects. Otherwise, we have no way to figure out what Jesus actually wants. So here's my hope for Trinity. Wherever politics comes up, or wherever there's an important application to politics from the Scriptures, those of us who are called on to preach to this congregation need to preach. 
And it will be critically important that we do our best to do so with respectfulness and precision and grace and nuance and care. And if we speak responsibly, we are counting on the rest of you guys to be gracious toward us, but also to correct us in love and to, to, to not divide, but to actually use it as an excuse to come to the table together and to talk stuff out. Because if we say something that we're totally wrong on, it's no good for, for any of us if, if we're not corrected. But also, it's no good for any of us if we're corrected without grace. Both of those things will end in division. So that's all I wanted to say. I just wanted us to be a community that is eager for all the wisdom of the Scriptures, however uncomfortable that might be, no matter how challenging. So here's how I'm thinking it will be best to tackle today's passage. Under your seats, there are Bibles. If you don't already have one out, I would take one out because, again, no slides. So today we're on page 827, so I encourage you to get those out right now. I think before I actually get to any application, let's just walk through the text together. Let's just do it together. So we're going to walk through the text. Let's work our way through and kind of get a sense of what's happening. And then at the end, I'll kind of share some, some reflections that I think might be appropriate. But I will condition us a little bit as we jump in. So as we're walking through the passage, here's what I think it's important to keep, our, keep in, on the forefront of our minds. The question of allegiance. Think about the question of allegiance. And I'm, I'm using that in a really broad way because it's actually, you know, I want us to just kind of be almost meditative about the way that we're, we're paying attention to it. So pay attention to where people say their allegiance is. Attention to where their allegiance actually is. And pay attention to where Jesus thinks our allegiance ought to be. So keep your antenna up for allegiance. Allegiance is the thing. So let's jump in. Let's start with verses 15 to 16. I'm not going to do all of 16. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So we're going to stop there. So we've entered into this section in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is just getting questioned and questioned and questioned by the religious authorities of his day. These are, the, these are the, kind of the church folk of his day. And they're going to ask him again about ethics and theology and, and politics. And Everett, who, who preached last week, he made a really great point. The questioning in of itself isn't actually bad, right? Like if somebody busted into our lives saying, I have ultimate authority, I speak for God, it would be for us to ask a couple questions, right? So on one level, this is totally understandable and even probably the right thing to do. This is what the Pharisees were there to do. If somebody came and, and made a, a messianic claim, in other words, they, they made a claim that they were the, the ultimate king of the world, then it, it would be right for the, the sort of religious gatekeepers to, to take some time to, to vet this guy. But here's what we're going to see. With each interrogation, Jesus comes out on top, okay? And it's not just because he's really great at rhetoric, right? Like, it, like Jesus isn't going to win these arguments because he talks pretty, right? He has substantial things to say. And so he's going to come out on top of all these conversations. Now, you would think that the more that Jesus comes out on top, the less opposition he would get. Because then it's like if he's really coming out on top with all these challenges, like, hey, man, this might really be our guy. But instead, we're going to see the opposite happen. The more it becomes clear that Jesus really might have the right to claim our allegiance, the more he gets opposed. And this is what that means. 
It means that the questioners aren't opposing Jesus because his claims to authority might be false. They're opposing him because his claims to authority might be true. And they are trying to wriggle out of living by Jesus' way. How often are we the same? Which is why this whole questioning process, it's no longer about honestly figuring out if Jesus is Messiah. Notice what it says the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to entangle him in his talk. So in other words, they're trying to like strategize about how are we going to discredit this guy? How are we going to make him look bad? How are we going to figure out how to, how to make it sound like he's contradicting himself? They have no allegiance to the truth. Okay, I'm going to say that again. They have no allegiance to the truth. It doesn't matter what the data is saying. They have no allegiance to the truth. They want to rigidly hold on to the status quo at all costs. They don't want to have to question their way of life. They don't want to have to question their perspective. They don't want to have to backtrack on things that they might have said or own up to things that that they've been mistaken about. So they need to make Jesus look bad. So the Pharisees send their disciples, and they send them along with a group called the Herodians. The Herodians were a group that lived or that, that, that worked for Herod, who was kind of a puppet king. He, he ruled over the Jews, but he was under the, the authority of Rome. And so the Herodians, they actually kind of had a vested interest in the tax that this whole argument is about, right? They would actually be probably more or less for the tax. And that's what's so interesting to me is that the Herodians and the Pharisees would never get along. But they've found something to agree on. Jesus, right? And so they actually team up in this moment to take down Jesus. And they, they get together and they put together this question. And they come to Jesus. Here's, here's what the question is. Here's the rest of 16 into 17. Teacher, we, we know that you're true. And we know that you teach the way of God truthfully. And that you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here's the significance of that question. They're asking about a tax that Rome is imposing on the entire empire. And, and they're, they're asking whether or not they, it's lawful to pay this tax. Now here's why that's complicated, that, why this is complicated. This tax doesn't just go to Rome, the occupying power. It goes to Caesar. And Caesar, in many ways, was kind of a bad dude, right? So if, if they were going to pay this tax, what they would do is they would take a coin, and on that coin would be the face and name of, of this particular Caesar. And just to illustrate the kind of guy that we're talking about with this Caesar, underneath his name is written, Debus et Pontifex Maximus, somebody who actually knows how to pronounce Latin can correct me later. But what that actually means is God and High Priest. So Face of Caesar, name underneath, God and high priest. This is just like a blasphemous level of self-esteem that this guy has, and it would have been deeply insulting to first century Jews. And so there is this like kind of valid question that they're asking. Like, can we do this? Can we pay this tax? I mean, this looks like he's saying he's God, right? So they, they actually are asking a somewhat legitimate question. And here's what's, what, what, what should be motivating the question. What they're, what they're pretending to ask is like, hey, we really want our allegiance to go to God in every way. So can we still have our allegiance go to God and pay this tax? Or is this a fight that we're going to have to choose? 
right? So the question is about if we pay this tax, does our allegiance shift from God to Caesar? That's the question that they ask. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to put Jesus in this no-win situation. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, he'll make folks like the Pharisees a little bit happy, but he'll come across like a revolutionary, which is going to turn off a bunch of his crowd, and the Herodians will hate him even more. If he says, do pay the tax, then the Pharisees won't like him, the Herodians will, and there will be another group of the audience that, that won't like it either. So it's this whole like catch-22 situation that they think is going to totally destroy his ministry. So that's, that's what the question is, is, is after. Put Jesus into a no-win situation so that he can look bad, and then we won't feel pressured to follow him, and maybe the people will reject him too. Here's what's really telling. Check out the way that they flatter Jesus. And, and specifically, look at what they're flattering him about. They're flattering him about where his allegiance is. Right? So they come to him and they flatter him about, like, Jesus, it's clear that your allegiance is to God and to only God. Right? Like, you don't care about appearances. Your, your allegiance is to God. And, of course, what they're, what they're trying to do is say, like, Jesus, we know you're like us. We know you're like us. You have this quality that we respect. You're not a people pleaser. You're a man of integrity. Your allegiance is to God. They want to come across as though their allegiance is to God, too. And so it's like that what they're trying to, to act like is they're, they're putting on this act where they're acting like there's this hot-button issue and they, they all just want to know what the most spiritually sound way to deal with it is. And so they're coming to this teacher to get an answer as though they're motivated by their allegiance to God. They ask him a question about worship, but they have no interest in worship. And so there's a, there's a, a lot of... Like, they, they literally say, you're not swayed by people's appearances, and they are putting up an appearance to try to deceive Christ. And so the irony is pretty thick. And this is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Jesus is calling them hypocrites because they don't actually love God. They don't actually have any real desire to worship God or to give him their allegiance. They don't love God, but they're using God. And I think that's really at the heart of what hypocrisy is. Oftentimes we, we say that a hypocrite is someone who says that there's a good thing we should do and, and they don't do that themselves. And obviously that's, that's oftentimes very true. But, for instance, sometimes it's not. So we live in a very health-conscious culture, right? It's pretty common that we'll hear folks like warn each other about the dangers of like sugar or whatever. Recently I was visiting a friend of mine who, who exercises a lot of restraint, with sugar, and he was telling me about how addictive it can be. He shared some honest warnings about it. Now, if, if he ever, like, suddenly lapsed in his diet, that wouldn't mean he was a hypocrite, right? That wouldn't mean he was a hypocrite if he warned me about the reality of, of how dangerous sugar can be and then lapsed. That wouldn't mean he's a hypocrite. It just means sugar's really addictive, right? It would be a different thing that would have to happen, for him to actually be a hypocrite. So for him, even if he lapsed in his diet, he could still, out of love for me and love for health, tell me about the danger and then encourage us both to, to take it seriously. That's, that's not hypocrisy. Now take another situation. Imagine someone 
again, on a really strict diet with sugar, and they tell people about this diet. And maybe they're even like an Instagram influencer or something. But let's say this person is not like my friend. They aren't motivated by love for people and love for health. Really, the things that they're doing in the name of health, they're really only doing because it gives them a leg up on people. It's just the most convenient way for them to feel superior. That would be a hypocrite. Even if they're living by their diet, that would be hypocrisy. Because they don't love health, they're using it. They don't love health, they're using it. Hypocrisy is when we use what we say we love. Obviously, most of the time that will mean that our actions, our words won't line up. But ultimately, what makes us hypocrites is when we use what we say we love. And that's why Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. They come to Jesus and they craft this question about how how can we best give our allegiance to God when they're actually trying to avoid giving their allegiance to God? They have no interest in real, all-of-life worship. They have no interest in following the way of the Lord. God is useful to them, but he is not Lord to them. Their allegiance is elsewhere. And so Jesus is going to respond in a way that not only like totally balances out this catch-22 thing, weaves his way through that, he's also going to answer in a way that's going to point out the reality of what's going on in their hearts. And he's going to make a joke along the way because he's amazing. So Jesus asks for a coin. And again, this is the, the super audacious like God and high priest coin that Jesus is handed, right? And so he says, Who, whose likeness and inscription is this? right? Caesar. So, so what he's asking is whose name and face is on this coin. Obviously, the answer Caesar, and so Jesus makes this cute little joke. It's not that, he, that he's not saying something serious. He is saying something serious that we should all follow. It's just that he communicates it through like this kind of, yeah, just like a cute joke where he's like, oh, well, if his name and face is on it, you ought to give it back to him. You know, it's probably his, right? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. That's the, that's the joke. That's the joke. And then Jesus adds this little line, And while you're at it, you ought to give back to God what's his. All right, now there's something really subtle that's actually operating underneath this. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of legwork to to find it and to to understand it. But when we do, we're going to realize that's just yet another of the thousand mic drop moments of Jesus' ministry. So, again, Jesus says, whose likeness is on this coin? That word likeness is translated from Greek. In the Greek, it's the word icon or or akon. For any Jew living in Jesus' day, akon would be a word that they hear pretty often. In fact, they would hear it any time somebody read to them from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So in other words, what we often call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. In Jesus' day, most people didn't read Hebrew, they'd read Greek. That was kind of the marketplace language. And so they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And that that was called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And any time someone would, would, would read from the beginning of the Septuagint, from the first chapter of Genesis, they would hear the word akon. And the reason why is because any time someone read from the the book of Genesis in the Septuagint, they would hear that God has actually put his acorn on something. They would hear that God has put his image, his likeness 
unto humanity. Humanity was brought up to reflect who God is. We are made to live for his glory in the life of the world. We've talked about this often. We are made to align our whole way of life with God's design. We are made to give him our allegiance. That's very much what it means to be made in God's acone or God's image, right? And so this is what Jesus basically did. He holds up a coin and says, whose acone is on this? Caesar's. Then give back to him what has his image on it. And give back to God what has his image on it. So are you seeing what Jesus just did? Jesus has this little joke, like, oh, hey, here's Caesar's thing. Give it back to him. And then you can almost see him, like, leaning in. Give back to God what belongs to him. Caesar is waiting for you to give him his coin. God is waiting for you to give him yourself. God's image is on you, and you've been withholding. It's this subtle but significant little jab that Jesus takes. He's showing he sees right past this whole pretense of wanting to live by, by God's values and all this like wringing hands about selling out to the state. Jesus sees right past that. The thing that threatens to come between the Pharisees and God isn't the tax. It's them. The thing that stands between the Pharisees and God isn't the tax. It's them. They are image bearers withholding themselves from the one who owns them. I think that's why they're stunned afterward. What do you say to that? And so the crowd disperses. What does this mean for us? So I'll sort of split this into two commands that we see operating here. There's render to Caesar and there's render to God, and we want to, to balance these two things. But ultimately, what I think the point is of, of what Jesus just did here is he communicated that, that, God, that, that our allegiance is ultimately to God, but that in following his authority, we will also follow the authority of the state in some very particular ways. So this is the part that I wrote at 945, so it's not going to be super clean, but here goes. So we live in times of incredible uncertainty, I think is the word that I hand wrote there. Times of lots of uncertainty. I'm thinking particularly about the impeachment of our president. I'm thinking about stuff that, that is coming to light, and then other groups that are saying that that's actually a hoax, and just all, like, tons of uncertainty about our country and the leadership in our country. And so how are we going to posture ourselves going forward? Because I guess, from my own perspective, I just more and more feel like a man with no country. Like a a man with with no allegiance to any particular political party. It just has stopped being useful to me anymore in my discipleship. Where more and more I find that, that like, ideas about conservative and liberal, this isn't about parties, or at least it shouldn't be. It should be about, like, those two words, conservative and liberal, are really ways of relating to the status quo. I think that those of us who are pro-life are looking to change the status quo, and that's a liberal position. Those of us who are trying to to maintain um, certain 
ideas around sexuality. That's a conservative position because it's trying to maintain a status quo. That's been way more useful to me. All that's probably an aside. This is what happens when I don't actually type out what I'm going to say. But here's, here's what I'm ultimately trying to, to get at. I think that Christians need to care way, way more about the kingdom than about any political party. I think Christians need to care way, way more about our witness than about supporting our lobby. It's way more important that we follow the way of Jesus than that our particular special interests get, you know, get attended to or whatever. Even at our own expense. If the question is between rendering to Caesar or rendering to God, we render to God. I think that that for a long time we have failed, many American evangelicals have failed in the way that we have interacted with politics. I think we have become, I should be nuanced about this, I think many of us have become like the Pharisees, that in the name of Christian values, in the name of God, what we're actually doing is just advocating for our own special interests, and the way we go after those things has often been at the expense of our witness. That in the name of God, we have done things that have deviated radically from the way of Jesus. And that's deeply disturbing to me. And I'm guilty of it myself. Because it's, it's scary to, to realize that, that you are no longer the majority. And so I think that there's been this sort of lashing out by, by many within American evangelicalism where we have been so desperate to maintain sort of the, the, the safety of our position and the safety of our place in society that we have been willing to endorse things that Jesus would have flipped over tables about. So what should be our posture? Which, by the way, what I just said, I think, particularly pertains to the political right. I think that there's another way in which it pertains to the political left. I think there's a group of Christians who are so desperate to um, endear themselves to the culture and to our society and to sort of carve out this place where it's like, well, how do I follow Jesus and still be cool? Which is, I, I found almost borderline impossible so in the effort to do that, it's sort of like, well, I will compromise wherever necessary so that I can still call myself a Christian and have some sort of comfort for my existential angst while still being what, what I think everybody wants me to be. So there's a whole other side of, of people please or dumb that's happening, I think, largely on, on, on the political left within Christianity. I think we have plenty of Pharisees on the right, plenty of Herodians on the left. What should we be? We should seek God's kingdom and seek the good. Seek God, God's kingdom and seek the good. And we'll do it by rendering to Caesar, but never at the expense of rendering to God. There's this prophecy, in, in, so there's this book in, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures written by the prophet Jeremiah. And he's writing to these people who are being taken into exile, taken out of their own land, brought under the rule of of a man who was way more unrestrained than Caesar and certainly way more unrestrained than Donald Trump. This dude was, was bad news. And they're going to have to live under his reign in a country that isn't theirs. And everything is being taken away from them. What are we going to do? And Jer- Jeremiah says this thing to him where he says, 
Here's what you're going to do. You're going to seek the good of the city into which you go into exile. You are going to seek the good of that place. The place that you have every reason to hate. Seek its good. Make your God known. Through the beauty of your character and through the announcement of what he has done in your life. Now, Jeremiah's prophecy, it would have been heard by, by a ton of, of Israel, Israelites, a ton of Hebrews, and they would have passed on those words. Now, this moment comes where they get taken into exile, and we actually have a book in, in the Hebrew Scriptures that talks about a group of people who, who acted on what Jeremiah said. It's called the book of Daniel. And what you see in, in the beginning of the book of Daniel is you see four people, four particular people that the story is going to kind of center around, four Hebrews, and they're brought under Babylonian rule, right? What do they do? What you end up seeing is they instantly start seeking the good of their city. They listen. And they accommodate wherever they can. And they support the, the empire wherever they can, even to the point where they get renamed Babylonian names. And there's no objection they give up their Hebrew names. Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego wasn't their first names. They were renamed in Babylon, but it's fine. You know, I'm not going to just like, stubbornly insist on my own rights at the expense of what could be my witness. And so they let them change their very names. And they start serving the city and, and seeking its good to the point where they're moving up into higher levels of government so that they're becoming actually advisors to the rulership as they the good, so that in, in the very courts of Nebuchadnezzar, there are followers of Yahweh who are desiring his good and, 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 and representing the way of the Lord in that place. They seek the kingdom while they seek the good. And of course, eventually this moment happens where where they're so valuable to the king, but the, the king makes this decision to, to demand worship. And at that point, all four of our main characters abdicate. They have this whole subversive loyalty thing, where it's like, king, we are loyal to you. In everything we do, we've proved ourselves through our actions and our moral character that we're loyal to you, but in this, we're about to be subversive. And they stage protest. But even the protest itself is like reframed in a way that most of us wouldn't even recognize, where it's a protest that still acknowledges the dignity of the person being protested against. It's this amazing thing. I think what what ends up happening a lot for us is we live in this information-laden society, and so what we, we end up doing is we just we try to like really mark out like each of our political arguments, and we really get a kick out of debates where one guy makes another guy look bad, and then we, we just sort of like accumulate all these ways of like counterattacking this argument, counterattacking this argument, and it's all about a political sphere that like none of us ever are actually going to touch because we're not representative senators or certainly not presidents. And then we go out feeling very politically prepared, and we defame the Lord with our speech on social media and in person. I think the way that we will most importantly act, and the most importantly contribute politically 
will often just be through our speech. That our words be seasoned with salt and with grace. And that we would stand for the way of Jesus. In my experience, there are things that conservatives do, lots of things that conservatives are for, that absolutely align with the way of Jesus. And there's stuff the liberals do too that align with the way of Jesus. And so it's kind of fun. Because as a Christian, you end up being sort of politically mercenary, which is kind of awesome. But that's where you end up standing. Our allegiance is not to, to a particular you know, political agenda. Our allegiance is to the kingdom and to its king. Which means that we have to also shift our mind in this way. America is not the Christian homeland. America is not the Christian homeland. America is Rome. America is Babylon. And all of us are exiles. And so we're going to seek the good of Babylon in the name of God. A lot of times what that's going to come down to is local involvement. Sometimes that will be through love, Inc. and informed choices. Sometimes it will be through things like the Mosaic Initiative. That's a group of 12 churches in Waukegan that are just for Waukegan. And that they are about to begin getting involved in activism. And they need allies. So sometimes it'll look like that. It'll look like, you know, gracious activism against the casino that's about to be, that, that's being, this, there's land in Waukegan that's being bid for, for the building of, of casino, which would be devastating to Waukegan and to its people. So sometimes it'll look like standing up against things would be terrible. And that's where the church will be made known as the people of God. It'll be through our speech and our service of the king so I want to end there. I want to end on Jesus the King. We follow him. We love him because he first loved us. At the end of the day, we are not democratic republicans. We are monarchists. Our king takes precedence over our president. And Jesus is the only leader that we can trust because he laid down his life for us before we had ever become loyal to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I am just feeling really uncomfortable because of the lack of planning that went into some of the things I've said here at the end. So what I'm asking is that your spirit would, um, would confirm the things that I've said that are in keeping with your scriptures and that if there's anything that was not in keeping with your scriptures, I pray that you would bring that to light for me. Um, Ultimately, God, what we desire to be is kingdom people. And we are so grateful to you, Lord, that, that you didn't wait until we acted like kingdom people to make us kingdom people. You gave your life for us on the cross, poured out your blood in grace for us rebels. Lord, thank you for including us in your people. And I pray, Lord, for, for us. Um, I pray for Love, Inc. and Informed Choices and for the Mosaic Initiative, those 12 churches. I pray that you would make us a light in Lake County. That you would make your people distinct here. and that we would seek the good of this place 
And Lord, that you would give us a glimpse of what it will be like on the day when your glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. For your glory and the life of the world that we live, we love you, Lord. Amen.